1: Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America.
2: I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. I'm honored and humbled today to have Frank D'Angelo with us, who is somebody who I've known for many years and... My knowledge of him comes from sadness, but my time with him has been joyful. Frank DeAngelis was the principal at Columbine High School when the shooting occurred there. Frank chose, or was chosen, to lead, and he continued to lead Columbine High School until all the kids who were in the schools at the time graduated. But he continues to work every day on school safety, and that's what we wanted to talk about today. So welcome, Frank.
1: Catherine, it's good to see you again. I can remember as if it was yesterday, walking the halls at Columbine and there was that special connection. Whenever times are down, I know I'm going to be getting a text from you just checking in. So that's what True friendship's all about.
2: We've been trying to catch up with Frank for a long time. He's very busy because he's busy helping everybody else. And so I didn't mean for us to run into April 20th but we are recording very close to April 20th and maybe tell our audience why that date is so significant, Frank.
1: I was in my 20th year at Columbine and I started out at Columbine as a very young person. And when I retired, I was not, but I ended up (laughs) uh, finishing my 20th year at Columbine. And then April 20th, 1999 comes around in beautiful Colorado Spring Day, which we have about 300 of those every year. So I'm in my office and my secretary comes running in. She face planted in, and that image is just scarred on my brain. And she said, Frank, there's a report of gunfire. This is not registering. And I could count on two hands the number of fist fights we had at Columbine. And so the first thing that crosses my mind, this has to be a senior prank until I came out of my office. And then my worst nightmare became a reality because something I was never prepared for is a gunman was coming towards me. And in my mind, everything just seemed to slow down. And It really didn't. And what ended up happening is as soon as I saw the gunman and I remember seeing the size of the rifle, it like about the size of a cannon, and shots were being fired, glass was breaking behind me. And all I kept thinking about was my family, because I'd never been in a situation like that. I still remember that day because I sprinted towards a gunman. And people said, Frank, you're unarmed. Why would you sprint towards a gunman? One reason my kids were in trouble. Had about 20. Five girls who were coming out of the locker room to go to a physical education class. They were unaware. And I said, we got to go. We got to go. But I knew in my mind, if I got them into the gym, there would be an exit outside. And everything was going as planned. I got the girls calmed down until I pulled on the gym door and it was locked. And we were in this little alcove and girls start crying. They start praying. Well, miraculously, I had a set of 30 keys on a key ring in my pocket. I reached in my pocket. The first key opened it on the first try. Or we wouldn't be having this conversation today. Wow. And it was a couple of years ago and this really hit me hard emotionally. Uh, Columbine High School's playing in a the state softball game. And I go and a young woman comes up to me and I recognized her. It was Catherine and she's looking at me and she starts crying. I start crying and we embrace. I said, Mr. Dean, she said, I just got to tell you something. I am so glad you found that key because that girl in right... It wouldn't be plain today if you didn't. And that's my daughter. That's the
2: thing about April 20th. It had so many horrible things, but it also brought so many people together. And it plummeted us forward, whether we wanted to go there or not. And the marker of the Columbine shooting, as terrible as it is, had I see many positive outcomes along with the negatives. Does that seem weird, Frank?
1: You're right on. I think there's so many lessons learned. What we don't talk about, and Catherine does a wonderful job in her book, Stop the Killing, is all the things that we have changed since that have stopped some of these from happening. Because we hear about the events that happen, but we don't hear about the ones that have been stopped for things we have in place. And I never want to get to a point in my life that there's another school shooting or an event, people saying, okay, how many this time? We can't accept this as the norm. I can remember back in 1999, Bill Bond, he was the principal at Heath High School at Paducah, Kentucky, when the shooting happened there. Yeah. So all of a sudden, my secretary comes in and says, this gentleman needs to talk to you. And he told me who he was. And he said something that resonated. He said, Frank, I can tell you, I know what you're going through. He said, here's my number. He said, you don't even know what you need at this point, but just keep it by your phone. And that had such a major impact on my mind. And I was pretty naive thinking, gosh, I hope, you know, what Bill did for me, I'll never have to make that phone call. And I made a statement. I said, I just hope my beloved 13 did not die in vain. And unfortunately, it continued to happen. And I think my first phone call was in February up into Santee, California. And I can't tell you when I make those phone calls, they pick up. And the first thing I say to them is, I know what you're going through, because I really do. I did that up until about 2018. And Bill uh, Waples from NASSP called me. And he said, Frank, we're really thinking of starting something called the Principal's Recovery Network. And we would like for you to head it up. And he explained, and I said, I think it's a great idea. So we ended up meeting and there are 22, I think, at this point that have been involved. And so we met in Washington, D.C. for the first time in 2018, and it was just life changing. We just sat in that room and just listened to each other because I think so many times in our lives when we go through things, we feel we're the only ones that are experiencing that event or emotion. And we shared our stories. And so there was this special bond and so then, under the leadership of Elizabeth Brown, who was at Florida, where shootings occurred, and Greg Johnson, who was at, in Ohio, where shootings occurred, they decided to facilitate something called the Principal's Recovery Guide. And what we did is we just shared our stories, and it really is something that could help people that go through similar situations, but also through events in their life. You know, we hope that you never have to go through an event such as we did at Columbine, You're going to go through something in your life. All we have to do is look back to the pandemic. The pandemic was the enemy. And so that guide has really helped. I would have never envisioned 20 years ago that we'd still be talking about Columbine every time there's another event happens. And this network has really reached out to help people. And just to share a story without naming names or situations, I got a phone call and they said, you need to talk to this person. There was a school shooting at his school. And I called him and I was just looking at him and his tears flowed down from his eyes. And he said, Frank, I don't know how I could ever get over this. Two of my students were in my office and one died in my arms. And it was so difficult to just, I just had to listen. And so that's part of it. And one of the things that I really have to work on with people is they're saying, Frank, I don't know how you did it you stayed for 15 years and I can't, it's affecting my life. And I said, no, one size does not fit all. You have to do what's best for you, your family, and your school.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I I didn't think about that aspect of it, Frank. And uh, there is a lot of social media, national media, local media pressure that's probably put on principals that probably just wasn't there in the same way. When this happened at your school, now I wonder if the people who you try to support. um, Do they talk to you about the comments on social media, for instance? That must be so hurtful.
1: Right. And going back to your comment, the only social media that I can remember was something called MySpace. (laughs) I mean, I had a conversation with the principal and Every time he posted something, it was a positive thing saying, we're doing this, we're reconstructing this. And of course, people would come back. Oh, yeah, you're concerned about the building, but what about the safety of our kids? I stayed off of social media during the pandemic. There was hatefulness. There were people attacking each other. And that's one of the things that I learned, no matter what you do, you're not going to please everyone. And you're being pulled in so many places to help others. But if you don't help yourself, you can help others. And I got into counseling. And as a matter of fact, a couple of weeks from now, I'm going to go back just to check in for maintenance. And what I learned is when you go through these situations, whatever they may be, you feel your life's out of control. And the last thing you want is for people to tell you what to do. And I presented at uh, law enforcement conferences, and they're tough people. But if I address the crowd now saying, I don't know about you, I'm not sleeping at night. I'm having reoccurring nightmares. I can't tell you the past few days, I've been to the hospital thinking I'm having a heart attack, it's anxiety. And all of a sudden, I see people nodding. And I did that the other day when I was at Denver East, and people came up and said, oh my gosh, I thought I was the only one. It's how you deliver the message. One of the last things I say to each one of those people that I've talked to, make me a promise that at least you'll go talk to someone. You got to find the right person, because one person may not be it, but don't give up hope.
2: Frank, when you talk to people, when you hear from people, you've been doing this for a long time. Does anything surprise you that you hear from people?
1: It really, it doesn't. I think a lot of it is, what's it going to be like going back in the school? What about the parents? A lot of times they're looking for people to blame. Unfortunately, I was named in eight lawsuits when people said, don't take it personally. But when you're being served with those papers, and a lot of times I had to put that aside and. It was an eye-opener for me when the family said, Frank, you need to understand, at times, in order for us to find out answers, they're telling us you got to file a lawsuit. And those families are entitled to knowing what happened. In the state of Colorado, there was a school shooting. It happened in December of 2013 at Arapahoe High School. Actually, there's legislation right now in the state of Colorado, which is the Claire Davis Act. Claire so tragically lost her life there on December 12th of 2013. And now they have to open this transparency just to see, because I think parents are entitled. And I keep referring back to Denver East that's going on right now that the parents want to know, what are you doing? There are kids in the school system that been expelled for weapon charges, but they're allowing them on these campuses. And his parents are saying, I need to know if my kid is safe.
2: Frank, can I ask you about that? When I go out to speak, I get asked a lot of things as you do. One of the things that reoccurs, especially when I talk to school administrators, they're saying but not saying that they are in a situation where they have potentially dangerous students who have done dangerous things, yet they're compelled to keep them in school, which I think speaks to people who say, well, I'm going to put my kids in a private school because private schools can kick kids out better than public schools can. How do you address that issue for school administrators And you know what? Maybe you could just explain to the audience what happened at Denver East.
1: In Denver East, they had a situation. It was right after the pandemic. They decided to remove all school resource officers. And so there was no armed security there. And Denver East, they had a student who was shot and killed in his car. And I think part of it is I'm going to put some blame on school administrators, on how they portray the school resource officers. Because unfortunately, it's the message. You know, what drives me crazy is when a school administrator says, if you act up, I'm going to send you down to the cop. That is not the message. The school resource officers, to me, are part of our faculty. Point being, I truly believe that the situation we're talking about, if there would have been a school resource officer there, not patting him down, but just standing there, that kid probably, knowing that, would not have brought that gun into there. And just so our listeners
2: uh, catch this, they had a student who was a known potential danger. And the policy was that before the kid could attend school every day, they would pat him down. Two school administrators. And one day when they went to pat him down, and I can see, for those who can't, I could can see Sarah's eyes beginning to bug out. They went to pat him down and he pulled a gun out and shot both of them.
1: Right. And this kid's smart enough to realize that they were going to empty the backpack or check the backpack every day. So he hid the weapon in his waistband and he had a bad vibe in the two school administrators realizing it was that point he pulled the gun out and shot two of them. Fortunately, they survived. And then what comes out after that is the fact parents want answers. How many other kids do we have in our building that are on these safety plans now? I am a strong proponent that we need, kids need education, but we can decide what that education is going to look like. And my number one concern is I know every kid is entitled to an education, but I'm also responsible for protecting the other 2,000 kids and 150 staff members. And so that's the major debate going on right now. I think school administrators are on
2: behalf of their students and teachers themselves and parents are beginning to say, look, privacy is one thing. And the United States has a very strong, strong history of privacy rights. But when you find out that, well, it has occurred here, we had a a student who raped another student and then was transferred to another high school in the district without anybody knowing that. And then assaulted a woman, a young lady in that school that he was transferred to. And there was understandably incredible outrage about why didn't we know this child who was so dangerous had been transferred to our school. That is a challenge that school districts are dealing with now in a way I think they didn't deal with them before. Now, why? Maybe that's a new phenomenon, Frank. You tell me.
1: I agree. And there's certain mandatory expulsions in the state of Colorado. I'm sure this is around the country, you know, weapon charges the sale of drugs, first-degree assault, that's mandatory expulsion from, and it's to protect the safety of others. And I'm all for giving every child an opportunity, but it not at the expense of the safety of others. And I know in Jefferson County, if a kid got convicted of weapon charges, you don't put them in another school. I don't feel comfortable doing that. And we denied those opportunities. And now I think what's happening in Denver, that's what the principals are stating. Why, if these kids were expelled for weapon charges or pending charges, and why do we have to put them in our school and risk the safety? And that's something it's gonna be interesting to see because not all school districts do that. In Jefferson County, if we feel a child is a threat to others, and we do the threat assessment and we go through everything possible, stating having him or her on campus is a threat to the others. And we do not accept those students. But that's not the case in some of the districts in Denver.
2: Frank, so. is part of that that school districts are financially uh, strained and they don't have as many alternative school opportunities? Big districts have those we know where they have a, a place where maybe you can do a little bit more security of students who are more at risk to themselves or others. I think in
1: some districts it's definitely part of it but I you look at a district like Denver which is the largest school district in the state of Colorado and I think it's a philosophy that they feel mm-hmm. and and we understand this all kids are entitled we want to give them a chance but at what point do you have to say that we also need to be concerned about the safety and welfare of others. And unfortunately, I'm anxious to see how it plays out in Denver if these parents are saying, we don't feel safe with our kids in Denver because of policy. It creates that political pressure to say, my kid
2: doesn't have to go to this school because it's too dangerous.
1: From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia,
0: Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital, or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game, or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and
2: start making tickets today. So Frank, what can parents do? Sarah and I really focus on empowering people. And when we look at the violence landscape as a whole, 45,000 people die of gun violence annually in the United States. And 20,000 of those are homicides. 25,000 of those are suicides, essentially. 500 of those were unintended killings from guns found by children, unintentional shootings. The school shootings and mass shootings are less than 1% of the homicides of the firearms deaths in the United States, they are a small but very visible sign of, of the trauma that we're all going through right now when it comes to firearms violence. What do you try to focus on when you try to be empowering and you try to think about how people can be part of the answer?
1: I think what they're doing in Denver right now is they're attending school board meetings stating that we want safety We just can't sit back. And one of the things that really amazed me was after the Parkland shooting, it was February 14, 2018. Those kids stood up, many of them, and I met with them. Because I think a lot of times as adults, we underestimate the voices of our students. And case in point, after Columbine happened, the parents, of course, are worried about the school safety. And Columbine High School, after Columbine, was probably the safest school in the world. And I assured the parents of that. We had more security cameras and things of this nature. And one day, some students are knocking on my door and they said to me, Mr. D, we know you love us. We know you want to keep us safe. We're more anxious now than what we were because of all the additional security and this is no longer like a school. So when we see these armed officers walking, when we see all these cameras, when we see people standing by doors, they're thinking, should I be worried? And so that is when I started having these discussions. How can we still make these schools safe, but at the same time, allow them to be conducive for learning or for your daughter's middle school saying, I can teach. I don't have to constantly looking out there and making sure. And so that's that fine line. Do you think that school resource officers are a yes? Oh, big time. And here's the thing, Catherine, I think that's important. Not all police officers are meant to be school resource officers. And they've even said that in talking to law enforcement, they said, there's people I would not want, they shouldn't be there. And last July, NASRO, the National Association of School Resource Officer, had their big conference here in Colorado. And I was a keynote presenter and there was 2,000 of them there. And I said, what you need to do is we need to change the narrative because so many times there's a narrative you hear is here says police officer that shot a kid or did this. But how many police officers are helping these kids on a daily basis? Unfortunately, it was a few years ago. One of our school resource officers during the summer was working old Arvada and he was killed. And I went to his service. There were 4,000 people at his service, but to see the kids that got up and said, this man made a difference in our life. And those are the stories we need to change that narrative. You know, that's very true. And the other question I get asked quite a bit, and it's a hot topic now about arming teachers. I'm against it. And I'm going to give my reason why. I was in a situation that day, I could have went through all the gun training. The thing that I don't know that I have is mindset. And so I come out of my office, all of a sudden, I'm able to get my gun and I'm going down. When I encountered that person as a law enforcement agent, I'm sure they're looking at, we're going to stop the person. What I'm looking at as an educator is I can help every kid. And more than likely, playing through that scenario is if I don't know if I could have shot one of my kids. And I would have tried to reason with him saying, What are you doing? There's got to be a better way he kills me. Now those 25 girls that I talked about earlier are dead. And so I think there's more than just saying, hey, we armed teachers, we're going to stop it. I don't know how many educators you would have get into education, principals, knowing that they were going to be armed and there's a possibility they would have to take down one of their students.
2: I said that in my book, I was not in favor of arming teachers. I know that Others are strong supporters of that. I've had so many hundreds, I swear, of conversations. I feel like I've never had a school teacher come up and say, I want to carry a gun because I'm going to shoot first and ask questions later. It's the same conversation that I have with clergy. I remember being on a, a big call with hundreds of clergy from around the country when I was working with the FBI. I was at the Department of Justice in this massive, as you would expect, this massive wooden conference room that was built in who knows when. And there were all these clergy from across the country on the line. And somebody came on with a question and said, I really think it's my duty. It's my obligation. My faith teaches me that I can talk to these people. And I hear that occasionally from school people, that I would try to talk them out of it, like you were just saying, Frank. I think that's what you'd go to, even if you realize As you're doing it, this is probably not going to work. And I think clergy feel that way too. And they're more vulnerable because of that. You have to recognize that you are not the one who's going to do that. When you go through the FBI academy or you go through law enforcement training, one of the things that struck me when I went there, when you go through firearms training, we said, if this is not for you, just tell us and we will find someplace else in the FBI that you can serve because not everybody has the ability To raise a gun and kill somebody else, even if that person is trying to kill them or raise a gun to kill somebody to protect somebody else. And it's important that you run this through your head a lot of times and be honest with yourself about whether you can do that. And I think that's what I'm hearing you say, Frank, is you recognize the honesty of the situation.
1: One of the things that haunts me to this day, yesterday was April 17th. And during the week of April 20th, you just go back to everything that transpired. But to make your point, April 17th was our junior-senior prom. And I can remember being at the prom. And I remember the killer high-fiving me. He's with his girlfriend, dancing, high-fiving me. We go to after prom. The other shooters there high-fiving me, knowing in their mind that if their plan would have been carried out and those bombs would have exploded, they would have killed a large percentage of their friends that were there. And I look at it, these were my kids. Two days, they're hugging me, Mr. D, Mr. D, knowing in their mind that they were going to try to kill us all. And I think as educators, we don't do it for the money. We do it because we feel we could help others. And boy, if it takes away saying, you're going to principal school, you're going to go through weapon training and things of that nature. Someday you may have to shoot one of your students. I don't know how many people would say, you have a nice day. This is not what I signed up for.
0: just on that line, when you have a child in your school that is on the pathway to violence, is there in your mind now, having been through all these years since, an amount of information or a threshold that you think parents should know that the school should be transparent with them? For example, if this child, as you say, has been moved into your school having a previous incident, what's the level that the school is responsible to tell the parent that?
1: Boy, that is such a key question, and that's what's transpiring now in Denver, because you have certain rights, whether it be FERPA, protection of the students, but at what expense? And the parents in Denver now, that's one of the things that they are addressing with the school board. They're saying, how many of these kids are on these campuses? Because parents are saying, do we have kids that are being checked every day for weapons? Yeah. Are the parents entitled to know that? And I think if you look at some of the times with sexual offenders, the law in which the people that live in the community need to know, are we getting to that point? As a parent, should they be entitled to say we have five students that are on safety plans for weapon charges? And I think that's the fine line now that'll be debated and it's probably going to end up, who knows, in the Supreme Court. So
2: Frank mentioned FERPA. FERPA is a federal law that limits the school district's ability, the school's ability to release any information to anyone about a student. It's been around for a long time. So that's what I think administrators are butting their heads against is a federal law that the law seems to say they cannot share that information with outside parties. They might, as a principal, might be able to say something to a police officer or a counselor, but they certainly can't say anything to another parent.
1: I even think with teachers... I can remember they would get upset with me saying, Frank, you know this. I definitely think we're going to see some changes
2: that'll come around to school districts. I think that because we have how many school districts in the United States? How many schools, Frank? Thousands, 150,000 schools in the United States. Sadly, it's going to be one policy And then another policy and then another policy, because the chances that there's going to be any federal legislation that might make that change is not, I think, non-existent. That's my spin, but I think that the school districts will work things out. And in the meantime, there'll be this unending kind of struggle. And a lot of parents are saying, I want to go to a charter school. I want to go to a private school because then I won't have to deal with that. But maybe that's a naive view.
1: But I'm anxious to see where we are headed uh, five years from now, 10 years from now, the state of education, because I think it is going to be different that everyone's entitled to certain rights. But at the same time, when it becomes at the risk of hurting others, I think we need to stand up and say we need to change.
0: Frank, before we let you go, you've also got a fabulous book. Are you able to tell our listeners where they can find your book? And also maybe direct them to all things Frank DeAngelis.
2: And also, I think, Frank, a lot of people would love to have an opportunity to have you come and speak. So I do want you to mention how they can find you. We'll put it in our show notes. Look at that. Wow. They call
1: me Mr. D, the story of Columbine's heart, resilience, and recovery. You know, right after the event happened, someone that I knew since high school said, do you want to write a book? And I said, the last thing I want to do, and I did not do any speaking, because my number one priority was to rebuild the community. But then when I retired back in 2014, I contacted my high school buddy and said, are you still interested in the book? And so we did. And it's really a book about the recovery piece, what allowed us to be where we are today. I saw someone yesterday when I was presenting, he said, boy, you really were vulnerable, but you open it up and it helps others. And that's what I was hoping to accomplish. And the last chapter is near and dear to my heart, because I talked to the parents who lost their kids and over at the Columbine Memorial, each of them was able to share something about their child. And that's the last chapter just to read that, to see what they, you know, about their kids and who they were. And so that's important And all the proceeds From sales go to the Columbine Memorial Fund, and they can get it on Amazon in various places.
2: It's a touching book, and it's kind of inspiring to me reading it, Frank, because we do this podcast and people say, oh, isn't that sad? And you've written two books and they're both Stop the Killing. They're all about guns and shooting people. And isn't that sad? But when I read your book, Frank, just like when I read Molly Hutchins' book, it's empowering. And that's really what we try to do here on the podcast is to know that we're, we're tough, we're tough. People are tough. They can manage a lot. They can deal with a lot and they can recover because they're not going to let somebody else who is a negative person win out. When you are resilient in your community, that shooter doesn't win.
1: Also, I do some work. It's called Safe and Sound Schools. And Michelle Gay, who's a dear friend of mine, Michelle Gay's daughter, Josephine, was killed tragically at Sandy Hook. And so we've connected in last year. I had the privilege, we did a virtual summit that we're going to do again in October. And Michelle and I co hosted, and we bring speakers from around the country to talk about their experience. And so Michelle's a dear friend of mine and her husband, Bob, and the work that we're doing is on behalf of Joey and all the others who have so tragically lost their lives.
0: Where can people find information about Safe and Sound Schools if they want to? Uh,
1: There's a website, Safe and Sound Schools, and it was started by Michelle Gay and Alyssa Parker, whose daughter Emily was killed also at Sandy Hook. It's just wonderful programs, but she devised a program because her daughter had special needs. And it's fantastic because a lot of times we train kids, but what about kids that are autistic? What about kids that have other needs, Down syndrome and things like that? So especially safe and it goes through the training for them. And I get asked to be a part of so many things, but I really want to do something that is near and dear to my heart, that our philosophies are so similar and we are to the point that we believe in what we're doing and how we do it. And it's a good thing. And I think Michelle and I feel we are making a difference.
2: My one question, Frank, is Are we doing better? I mean, are you feeling like
1: we still have shootings? Are we in a better state than we were before? People look at me and say, Frank, you can't always be this positive. But I live by the philosophies I can't dwell on the negative. I got to build on the positive. I can just sit back and say, I'm done. But when I end every presentation I do, and I believe this with my heart, I refuse to be helpless. I refuse to be hopeless. And I refuse to ever give up. And I'm going to continue because when I was sitting at my brother's house on the night of the 20th, because the FBI was concerned about my safety and welfare at my home, I'm sitting there and just questioning I do not want to have these kids die in vain. And each day, before my feet hit the ground, I go Cassie Bernal, Stephen Kernow, Cory Depooter, Kelly Fleming, Matt Kechter, Daniel Mauser, Danny Rohrbaugh, Dave Sanders, Rachel Scott, Isaiah Scholes, John Tomlin, Lauren Townsend, and Kyle Velasquez. And before my feet hit the ground, the reason that I do what I'm doing, the reason I'm doing this podcast is because of them. And I got to share something with you. And this is pretty powerful. Last year, I presented for NASRO and we decided to do something over at the Columbine Memorial. And it was raining And it was thunder and lightning. And Mo Kennedy, who's the executive director for NASRO, said, Frank, do we continue? What do we do? And the same thing happened at the groundbreaking. Back on June 24th of 2006, President Clinton was there, and it's lightning. And Don Anna, she made this comment, they're here. Can you feel them, our angels? Wow. Eyes cleared back on June 24th of 2006. Well, last year, we're looking up at lightning and we're saying, what's going on? I read that quote. They're here. Can you feel them? Our angels. I read the names of the 13. When I finished, there was a rainbow throughout the sky. Wow. Each year, one of my kids who died, I would call the parents and offer them a diploma in cap and gown. And some parents said, Frank, no, we really don't need that. But one that stands out in my mind was Kyle Velasquez's parents of Phyllis and Al Velasquez. So they come in and they walk in and immediately we start shedding tears. And they said, let's cry because we lost him. but smile because we had him. So they're getting ready to leave. I give them the cap and gown and diplomas. Mr. Velasquez comes in and he says, Frank, I want to do something. There's a little space on my wall. He takes off Kyle's hat and I said, Mr. Velasquez, that's Kyle's hat. I can't take it. He said, no, I want you to put it in this little spot that every day you walk through that door, remember how much your kids love you and how much you love those kids and you continue to do it. And Kyle's going to be with you every step of the way. And it's things like that that allowed me to continue to do what I'm doing 24 years uh, this Thursday.
2: This week we're joined by one of our favourite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.
0: Something is creeping,
2: don't follow it down.
0: Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.